0: You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. Good morning, church family. Good to see you. Glad you're here this morning. What a great passage that we get to study, that we get to dig into today as we continue our sermon series in the Gospel of Mark. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Jordan. I want to just welcome you. If you are a guest with us this morning, we are so glad that you were here. Um, yeah, it's it's just a it's an exciting time in the life of this church. We really do believe that we are in a season of renewal as a church. We have been in a season of, of multiplication as a church. Um, we're going to talk a little bit more about that after this gathering. For those of you guys who are partners, I want to remind you we're having a partner meeting. Uh, even if you are a kind of a in process partner in process, you haven't maybe finished all of those steps yet. You're welcome to stick around. Um, But yeah, it's an exciting time in the life of the church. We're in a we are in a season in this church family where God is doing a lot of a lot of really exciting things, and so we're so glad that you're here, partners. Hope you'll stick around this afternoon. If you're not already open to Mark chapter one, I want to make sure that you get there. Get the Bible out in front of you. I'm I'm really excited to get to teach this passage this morning. if you are like me and you grew up in or around the church, you probably had a couple of like vacation Bible schools that were like around this theme of like fishers of men, you know? This is such an iconic, classic passage of scripture, um, Jesus' call of discipleship, and I'm just excited to get to teach it. Uh, one of the things that's unique about this passage is, I want to kind of get us into the context a little bit. One of the things that's unique about this passage is this idea in the first century world of, of teacher Disciple. Something that we need to uh, understand before we go any further. This idea of teacher and disciple, particularly um, what it would have meant for a teacher to call someone to be their disciple. Um, Galilee, which is where Jesus has launched his ministry, we looked at that last week. Rick did a great job of showing us Jesus' uh, core message, launching his ministry, saying, The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. Galilee was a place where there were, um, were, were many teachers of God's law, right? So all of the smart religious people weren't just in Jerusalem uh, during this time. Galilee was a place, there was a, it was a, a booming trade center, uh, a trade center. Uh, there was a lot of business, there was a lot of, of, of the fishing industry was a really big deal, uh, there was a trade route, and there was a, 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 a zealous, strong religious community in Galilee. This is why Jesus would often say in his ministry, Jesus would often say things like, "Um, you've heard it said blank, but I say unto you, right? Because there were a lot of teachers that were out there giving their particular interpretation of God's word, of God's law, that they they had a following, they had disciples that had come after them. And any rabbi, any teacher who was worth his weight in gold during this time would have had, uh, would have had disciples, would have had people who follow them. And so this is the context of our passage. Jesus has launched his ministry. He's been very clear about who he is, that he is the the sent one of God who's bringing the kingdom of God. And now it's time for him to gather up and select disciples. So I want to point our attention back to the text. I want to read it for us one more time. And then we'll start to make our way through it. Starting in verse 16. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets, and they followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat. And the hired hands and followed him. There are three things that I want to point out to us this morning about the call of Jesus in this text. One of the things that is clear about this call of Jesus is that Mark wants us to see that we cannot remain neutral about Jesus. You either receive him and follow him, or you reject him, and you go about your own way. And so there are three things that I want to point out to us three things that have that begin here with Jesus' call on his first disciples that have remained true over the last 2,000 years as Jesus has called billions of people to follow him in discipleship. Three things. Number one, when Jesus calls, he calls the unworthy. When Jesus calls, he calls the unworthy and he calls them with grace. At first read, we might not catch how earth shattering this little scene is that we get in these five verses. Right here we see Jesus come strolling along the busy seaside in Galilee. We kind of get this like cute little picturesque idea of you know Jesus walking along, his hair maybe flowing in the wind, looking kind of cute that day. And and uh, he decides that he finds some friends and he calls those people to come you know be his buddies and go along with him. At first we might miss how actually um, stunning this is, how out of the norm this would have been, how shocking this would have been to the original hearers, to the people of Jesus' day. Here's what I mean. Rabbis or teachers in Jesus' day were sought out by aspiring students, not the other way around. In Jesus' day, it was kind of the, the smart guys, the, those who were um, serious about the religious education, those who themselves wanted to become teachers or rabbis, who would seek out a rabbi to study from. These select individuals were called uh, talmidim, in Hebrew, which translates into English as disciples. And it was common for teachers in Jesus's day to have a group of talmidim, or disciples, who followed behind them wherever that they went, seeking to learn their ways, seeking to become like them, one day hoping to have a teaching ministry of their own. These are the ones who probably excelled as children, learning the Torah and learning the scriptures. As young adults, they not only learned a trade, but they worked their way up through uh, the, the next part of the Jewish education system. They were really, in many ways, the cream of the crop. And the next step for them was to seek out a teacher or a rabbi to learn from. And so I want you to see that what, how what Jesus is doing here is so out of the norm for the day. In fact, Mark puts this in our face here because we need to get used to it. As we keep looking at Jesus' ministry and his works as we move forward, Jesus is going to continue to do thing after thing after thing that's outside of the norm. Here Jesus is the one who is doing the seeking. He's not gathering up disciples for himself near the synagogues where all of the Sunday school valedictorians would have hung out. He's not gathering up kind of all the religious elite, the people with the MDivs and the PhDs in theology to come and follow him. That's not what he's doing at all. Instead, he is walking along the Sea of Galilee with all of the folks who were not looking at all or were interested at all in entering into Talmudim, into discipleship with a teacher. These are the people who were um, either not interested enough in the things of God, they were not righteous enough, maybe they were deemed not quite smart enough, and so they off-ramp. They had learned the basics and now go learn a trade. Go learn a craft. These are the people who are neck deep in life, in career, in family burdens. They are not aspiring holy men. They are fishermen, Mark emphasizes in the text, doesn't he? He wants us to see it. That's the distinction that he's making. These are unfit, unworthy disciples. And so the first thing that we learn about Jesus and his call is that Jesus seeks and Jesus calls the unlikely, the unfit, the unworthy to be his disciples. This is who he seeks. He goes to them. He calls them out. They don't come looking for him and hold up their spiritual resumes, but instead, Jesus interrupts their story. And I don't know about you, but this was certainly true for my life. Jesus interrupted my story. Jesus just showed up in my life, and he rerouted my life, and he called me into a new way. Of thinking, a new way of living, a new way of understanding who I am and what life is all about. Again, they don't choose him, he chooses them, these unfit, unqualified, unworthy disciples. And Jesus is consistent with this message throughout his ministry, right? Jesus says things like, I haven't come for the, for the, for the well, but for the sick. Jesus says, I, I don't come for the righteous, but for the Unrighteous. Jesus is consistent with who he calls. You see, to be a disciple of Jesus means that you must recognize that this is who you are. And this can be challenging for some of us who kind of pride ourselves and how buttoned up our lives are and how impressive. Maybe we kind of do walk around and carry our resume a bit. You know, look, I'm a good person. Look at what I've done. Look at, look at, look at, you know, look at my spiritual resume. Been a solid church member for decades, tithe every month. And we often can kind of start to see ourselves in light of what we do rather than our true state, who we really are, that we have been sought out, that we are unworthy, that we are unfit, that we've been found and called and redeemed by unmerited grace. You see, Christ followers, disciples of Jesus, are the furthest thing from elite. And maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. You're, you, you've never Follow Jesus. Put your faith and trust solely in him. Maybe you're kind of on the fence a bit with Jesus. And I just want you to know that if maybe that's been the impression that you've gotten from Christians, is that Christians are the elite and that you or maybe are an outcast or not good enough, not morally superior enough. I want you to know that that is a gross misunderstanding of what it means to be a disciple. A disciple is someone who's unworthy and unfit in every way, but has been a recipient of lavish, transformative grace. It's not our resume church. It's not our performance. It's not our good works. It's not our buttoned up spirituality that makes any one of us worthy or fit to belong to Jesus. It's simply the effectual nature of his call. It's that he saw you and that he sought you and that he called you to belong to him. In fact, if anyone wants to become a disciple of Jesus, they must first recognize that they are unworthy and that they are unfit, that you are a sinner who has fallen short of the glory of God, that you are before Christ by nature, an object of his wrath, that you are broken, that you are flawed apart from Christ, that you are self-centered, that you are in need of rescue. And I want you to know that that's not something that we have to hide, that we are broken, that we are sinners, that we are flawed, that we are self-centered at our core, that we are in need of rescue. That's not something that we have to hide. We don't have to pretend. In fact, that is something that actually makes you desirable to Jesus. Do you see that? That is exactly what makes you desirable to Jesus, is your brokenness and your need to be saved and transformed and redeemed and to receive his love and his transforming grace. Jesus came not to condemn, but to save. Jesus came because he loves sinners like you and me. And so the first thing that we see in the text is that Jesus calls unworthy people to be his disciples, and he calls them with grace. The next thing that we see is that Jesus calls with authority. He calls with authority and he calls with demand. Um, the fact that these men, Simon, Andrew, James, and John, would, the text tells us, twice immediately, that that word could also be translated at once. Like, and the fact that they immediately drop their nets and follow Jesus, it's really stunning. It is, it's really, really a stunning claim. Um, there might be some folks that try and make the case and they say, well, uh, the reason that they would abandon everything and follow Jesus was because they were poor peasant fishermen, right? I mean, these guys are like trying to just find some food to eat because they're hungry that day. They're these poor peasant fishermen, and, uh, and so here comes this rabbi that calls them into a new life. Of course, these poor guys would want to follow Jesus, but I want you to know that that's actually a really, really poor interpretation of the scriptures. That's an interpretation of this text that's really kind of blinded to the, to the historical context of what was actually happening here. In fact, it's more likely that these guys are like successful businessmen than it is that they are poor peasant fishermen. Like it's more likely that this would be like, you know, guys that are studs on an international sales team at Dell, or guys that are like CEOs of booming startups that would drop all of that and abandon it in order to follow this rabbi from Nazareth. (laughs) It's really stunning what's happening here. In fact, I was, as I was reading and studying this week, I came across two scholars who have devoted their lives to studying the Sea of Galilee, um, Mendel Nunn and Barjol Pinksner. And they've identified this exact location. In fact, even today in modern, modern day, they refer to this as the, the harbor of Peter. This exact location. And, and Nunn and Pinksner say that during this time, um, that this harbor would have been uh, home to dozens of ports. Just think about this. Dozens of ports. there would have been hundreds any given day, hundreds of boats coming in and out of these ports. that this was a place that would have been busy and bustling with trade and business. Fish was the primary food uh, in this time and in this place. Fishing was a booming, competitive industry in Galilee, and this uh, Binksner and Pinksner and um, Nunsay, and this was the primo spot to do the prime business in the day, okay? Like, this is the location. And so for these men to have, to be here in the midst of all of this would have meant that they were, in many ways, successful businessmen, keeping business afloat in this kind of market. In fact, it's really clear, even with, with James and John, that this was a family business, it had been handed down to them. Uh, we'll talk about poor Zebedee in a minute, uh, who, who kind of gets ghosted here. Um, what a day he had. I wonder what he went home and told his wife. You know, um, These guys were businessmen. So do you see how astonishing it is that they would follow Jesus in the way that they do? That they would immediately, the text says, abandon and take off after Jesus. Simon and Andrew right in the middle of the job. James and John leave their boats And their father and their employees, think of it, they leave their assets. They leave their assets behind in order to follow Jesus. It's not just their nets that they lay aside. It's their business. It's their security. It's their future. It's their family. It's their heritage. It's their identity. They leave behind all that they are familiar with everything that they had been comfortable with, all that was normal in order to follow Jesus. Why? Why would they do this? This is exactly what Mark wants us to be asking as we read this text. He makes the emphasis. They are fishermen. They are successful. They have money. They have lives. They have careers. He leaves behind his dad in the boat. Why would they do this? Well, there is something about Jesus that he wants us to take in and to consider. The the authority of Jesus. The authority of Jesus is what Mark puts before us here in this first scene. And it is the authority of Jesus that he will tease out over the next seven chapters. Look at the authority and the power of this man, Jesus. Particularly in this scene, there's something about his words. Something about his presence, his very nature that is so compelling, that is so powerful, so real, so true, so different than any other person, and any other words that they immediately leave all behind and follow him. There is an irresistibility to the person of Jesus and the call of Jesus when Jesus speaks to your heart and calls you to belong to him. Amen? And I know without a doubt that there are many of you who have experienced this in your own life. You've experienced that authority of Jesus' call, that irresistibility of his words when he calls you in your life, that there was a moment for you when you realized that a holy God had come near to you, an unworthy sinner. You heard his voice call to you. You heard that effectual, irresistible call of Jesus inviting you and all of your mess and your insufficiency and your unworthiness to come and belong to him and all of his beauty and power and grace That moment when he called you, he showed up in your life and he called you. Maybe for some of you, it was out of the darkness of sin. You were entangled in sin and brokenness. And Jesus says, I'm calling you out of that. Maybe for others of you, it was you were living kind of a dead-end life, pursuing the things of the world. And Jesus looked at you and he saw you and he called you out of it. He says, none of that stuff will ever satisfy you. Come and follow me. But you had that moment. Jesus has been doing this for centuries, calling unworthy people with authority and irresistible grace out of sin and darkness, into marvelous life, into his kingdom. But it's also important that we recognize in the text that not only does Jesus call with authority and irresistible grace, but Jesus calls with demand. Hear me for a minute. Jesus calls with demand. Jesus' call demanded that they leave behind and follow him. When Jesus says, Come follow me to Simon and Andrew and to James and John, He is calling for their full devotion, okay? He's not allowing them to keep one foot in the water and one foot with Jesus. He's calling for their complete devotion. That's what it would have meant to be called into Talmudim, into discipleship, is complete devotion. Come do what I do. Come learn what I know. Come, Come and teach what I teach. Come and become like me. Follow in my way. What we say around here, learn and live the way of Jesus. That is what discipleship is. It comes with the demand, And the same is true for you and I. When Jesus calls, he calls to make knowing him and loving him and serving him and resembling him and living for him the supreme passion of our lives. Which that means that Jesus becomes the priority in all things for us. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. Die to yourself and all other ways of living. He calls for devotion. Jesus takes priority over career Jesus says to the rich young ruler, if you want to come after me, sell your possessions, and then you can come and follow me. I mean, he's serious about this. Jesus says, shockingly, that if you want to come after me, you must hate your father and mother, brother and sister. He takes priority even over family. In fact, when I was doing college ministry a decade ago. I, we did a sermon series one time that I titled, Things I Wish Jesus Hadn't Said. And these were some of them. Like, what? What? kind of wish you hadn't said that, Jesus. Now I've got to deal with it and figure out what it means and how to obey it. What does that mean? Jesus calls with demand. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God. Don't seek the kingdom. Don't seek Jesus as kind of a side hustle, an accessory to your life. Jesus calls with demand for full devotion, full allegiance if we're going to be his disciples. And I know that there's probably some tension here. That's the point. There might be some of you who are thinking, that sounds kind of extreme. Like, that sounds kind of radical. Like, I kind of would prefer, like, Jesus in moderation, right? You know, like, moderation in all things. (laughs) Like, if maybe there was a spectrum of over here, like, kind of hyper, hyper-religious people, and over here, like, totally irreligious people, you're like, put me in the middle. Like, Jesus in moderation, right? I don't want to be those... Hyper-religious people. We all know judgy, stuffy people like that. In fact, there are some hyper-religious people that are abusive and hateful. There are some that are just awkward and weird, and maybe you don't want to be like, like if it was the early 2000s, those would have been the people that instead of Abercrombie and fish, were wearing the, a breadcrumb and fish sure. you know? They're like, I'm not that, I don't want to be that person. Um, just give me Jesus in like, moderation. In fact, there is a lot of this in our context today. There are even churches that have kind of promoted this kind of discipleship with like easy believism and prosperity gospel that Jesus kind of exists for you to help you, not the other way around. That's not how it works. Jesus doesn't follow us. We follow him. He chose us. He calls us. In fact, this nominal, casual, moderate idea of following Jesus is such a gross misunderstanding of both the gospel and the call of discipleship. Remember, the gospel isn't advice. The gospel isn't some theoretical concept about afterlife. The gospel is what? We talked about this a few times in a row. What is the gospel? It's news. It's an event. It's something that really happened. It's a claim about something that really happened, that God has done something in this world, in the person and work of Jesus, that Jesus really came, and he really lived, And he really died on a cross. And the claim of the gospel is that he really rose again victoriously. It is news. He is either king or he is a fool. He is either Lord of all things. He's either all-sufficient Savior and glorious King and Lord of your life, or he is nothing. There's no in-between. There's no being moderate with Jesus. Hear me. The call of discipleship to Jesus it is not about becoming radically religious. It is not about becoming awkwardly religious. It is about Jesus, the king of all heaven and earth, calling you out of dead-end living in a world of sin and death and into the reality of his kingdom. That's what it's about. Discipleship, then, is about a complete reorientation of our lives. A complete reorientation Where we start to rethink and reinterpret everything in light of the news that Jesus has died and risen, that Jesus is coming again to make all things new, to bring His kingdom in full. It's a complete reorientation. I have a friend of mine that I was talking to this week, and he was telling me about a book that he's recently read called "The Tech Wise Family." Anybody read that book? You know, it's written by a guy named Andy Crouch. It's a really good book. That's not the point of this illustration, but it's a really good book that kind of talks about how do we cultivate relationship and intimacy and a world of like screens and technology especially in your family if you're if you parents and um, he was telling me how he's read this book and that in light of the book what they did is they decided to rearrange reorient the furniture in their living room because right now the furniture in their living room had been kind of oriented around the television and so what was central in their home was the television screen a screen and so they decided to move their tv out of the living room put it upstairs hey we're not you know we're not Crazy TV's not evil, but in our living room, we want it to be oriented around relationships. So they rearrange the furniture. It's a great illustration for the call of discipleship, actually. Whatever your life looked like before, it's not like you're completely getting rid of all of those things and you become some uh, hyper-religious weirdo. It's a call for a reorientation, all of it being rearranged now around Jesus, who is central, his life and his death which is central, which completely changes the way that you think about who you are and who you're not. It completely changes the way you think about why you live and what you live for. It's a complete reorientation. Now we view ourselves through the good news of his death and resurrection, not through what we've done or what we haven't done, not through our resumes or um, or, our failures, not through our highs and our lows, but through Jesus. And we begin to learn to view our life through the lens of his kingdom, which Leads me to the third point. Discipleship, his call is to the unworthy with grace. It is with authority and demand. And he calls us into new life in his kingdom. New life in his kingdom. I want you to notice that Jesus isn't using his authority and irresistible grace to call these men into a conceptual faith about an afterlife. Please, 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 please notice that. It's not like, hey, come be my disciple. And one of these days, you'll go to heaven. No, he calls them into active discipleship in the here and now. He calls them into active discipleship. Look again at verse 17. Look back at it. Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. I love the rendering of the ESV. There's some translations of the Bible that say things like, um, I, will, uh, I will make you uh, fish for men. There's some translations of the Bible that say, I will send you out. NIV says that. I will send you out to fish for men. I think the ESV really captures uh, the heart of what the scriptures say here, what the Greek says. I will, he says, I will make you become fishers of men. It is about two things. First, identity. Second, activity. Jesus isn't just looking for some hired hands to grow his movement. He's offering them new identity and new purpose. He is promising them, this is a promise, that if you come after me, I will transform you. I will make you become someone new. It's about identity, new identity. And then I will use you in the work of redemption and salvation. You will fish for men. And I just love how he speaks it into their language, you know. Into their world, Like I have to think like when Jesus, if, if this were me, which it's not, but if it were, Jesus came to me, he'd probably speak in like some sports analogy for me. You know, like he's speaking it so into their language. I'm gonna give you a new identity and new purpose in my kingdom. Come on, leave all this other earthly stuff behind. Come live the good life in the kingdom. And I want you to know that the same thing is true for you if you are his disciple. Your identity is not in what you do and what you have done or what you failed to do. Your truest identity, if Jesus has called you, is found in him. And he's given you a greater purpose to live for. Jesus, his call on your life, brings dignity and significance to all of it. Jesus' call brings dignity and significance to every aspect of your life. You see, if the gospel is just a concept to us, then we kind of live our life in the ins and outs of every day with really a disconnected faith. There's like this gap. But if we understand the gospel as news, Jesus has done something and we reinterpret who we are through his death and resurrection and we reinterpret how we live and what we live for in light of his death and resurrection and second coming, it touches everything in our life. So those of you who are parents, I know not all of you are, but for those of you who are parents, let me show you kind of how it changes things as we learn to live in the kingdom. Parenting is no longer just about raising, like not raising hellions. That's the worldly way of viewing parenting. Like let's just raise good kids, successful kids. Parenting now in the kingdom all of a sudden becomes about uh, teaching our children about the grace and the goodness and the mercy of God and trusting them to God and rendering them up in discipleship. What about marriage, right? If those of you who were married, uh, in the world, you know, ma- marriage is just kind of about like happiness. Like, let me find a person that will fulfill me. And that's just a disaster, by the way. Like trying to find another, one sinner trying to find another sinner to fulfill them. Like bad idea. Um, but good luck with that. In the kingdom of God, all of a sudden, we reinterpret it differently. Marriage is not, it's not about happiness alone. It's about holiness. It's about God sanctifying us. It's about marriage being a display of Christ in the church. What about work? You know, In the world, apart from Jesus and his call on our lives, work is just about money, maybe. It's something you have to do, but you hate it. You'd really rather be hobbying. Maybe it's about achievement and status, But in the kingdom, all of a sudden, everything about our work becomes significant. It becomes powerful. It becomes meaningful. If if you're a nurse, you are the tangible presence of the loving King Jesus to your patients. If you're a teacher, you're a different kind of teacher than someone who doesn't know Jesus and hasn't been called to be his disciple. You're the loving presence of Jesus to your students. If you push buttons on the cash register, you're the opportunity for a stranger to encounter the loving, kind presence of Jesus. Did you know that the earliest church... This is recorded in the book of Acts. The earliest church, they were first called Christians, which meant little Christs. Do you know why they were first called that? Because the way they lived and worked in real everyday life reminded people of Jesus. Little Christs called into his kingdom, called to live in his kingdom, kingdom life. I'll make you fishers of men. I'm going to reorient your identity. You're going to become someone new with a new identity, And I'm going to reorient your activity and make it meaningful and significant. Bring dignity to it. Bring purpose and redemption. You see, that's what Jesus' gracious, powerful, demanding call is all about. Discipleship is not about an easier life. Discipleship is not about a suffering free life. If you've thought that, that maybe being a Christian means life gets easier for me, I want you to think about these guys. These four guys, their life probably would have been a lot easier and much more comfortable if they had stayed in the boats. It's not about an easier life. It's not about a religious life. These guys, their life actually would have stayed much more religious as that would have been understood in their day had they stayed in those boats. But in fact, all of a sudden, now they're hated and eventually killed by the religious people of the day because their life looked so radically irreligious because it was so much about Jesus. It's not about a religious life. Jesus' call for you and for me is about a transformed life. A transformed life. Learning and living under the good rule of King Jesus. A king who seeks out sinners and gives grace and forgiveness to them freely. A king who is really ruling and reigning and gives you a new identity and new purpose for everyday life. A king who sustains you with hope in all of life's sufferings. He's with you and he's near to you and he's working all things for your good. He's promised in every way to sustain you. A king who is ruling and reigning even when the world is raging. A king who is coming again to judge the living and the dead. This is what discipleship is a call into a transformed life under the good rule and reign of King Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you are far from God, I want you to know that this offer, this call is available to you this morning, that this is why Jesus has come to offer forgiveness and redemption. It's what we call salvation, it's forgiveness and redemption to sinners. This is why He's come to restore us to God, to bring us into his kingdom, to repurpose our life for his glory and honor until the day that he comes again. I want to ask you this morning, all of us, have you heard his call to you? Have you heard Jesus' call to you? Have you responded appropriately to his call? Have you abandoned all else and embraced Jesus as your all in all? Are you still maybe holding on to some of the things of the world? Are you still on the fence with Jesus? Are you maybe one foot in the water and one foot out with Jesus? Where are you this morning? I want you to remind you that he calls us with grace. He calls us with authority. He calls us with demand. He calls us into better living in his kingdom. I want to pray for us that God would help us to hear his call and respond appropriately. I want to invite you to stand and we're going to pray together. God, we want to say thank you for your word. Thank you for this book, Mark's Gospel, which gets in our face. In many ways, it grabs us by the collar and makes us consider the real Jesus. Not the Jesus that we've made in our own making, not the Jesus that other people have tried to push upon us, but the real Jesus. And so we want to consider you, Jesus, in your call, the real call of Christ, the call to the unworthy God we humble ourselves before you this morning and we say that we are sinners in need of your grace and we thank you that you offer to call us out of darkness into light to give us new identity to make us children of God we thank you that your call Jesus is with demand and with authority that you won't let us follow you in moderation in fact to follow you in moderation is a dead end and so if that's someone in this room this morning that's kind of been playing it safe and casual with Jesus has not been all in with you I pray that you would call them out to abandon to full abandonment that you would reorient first the heart that we would see you as supreme and most glorious and most wonderful and most living most worthy to live for and then you would reorient our life full devotion to you and thank you Almighty God, that you call us into kingdom living here and now, that you make everything that we do significant in your kingdom. And so would you teach us how to view ourselves in light of reality of the cross and resurrection, view our working, view our sleeping, view our eating, view our hobbying, all of it through the lens of the kingdom. Teach us, God, continue to be our teacher. We follow you. We love you, God. As we enter into this time of response, I pray that you would pour your spirit out over us, that you would minister to us, that you would nourish our faith, that you would be honored and exalted and lifted up. Pull us up into the spiritual realm, we pray. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.